Sometimes when you hang around with apologists, you realize that not all of them do a fantastic job showing love to the people they're talking to. But the guy we're talking to today, Dr. Andy Bannister, is not one of those guys. Welcome back to the All Things All People podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Jenkins. And the goal of the show here at All Things All People is just to show you that you don't have to be a well-known Christian to be a Christian thinker. And so today you are going to get an amazing opportunity to hear from a world-class Christian thinker, world-class apologist, scholar in Islamic studies, and all sorts of stuff. And I think you're really going to have a good time. Dr. Annie Bannister was an amazing interview and we touch on topics from Islam and how to discuss Christianity with Muslims to atheists specifically to a debate that he recently had with Dr. Peter Singer, who is one of the most well-known philosophers in the modern world and holds a worldview that is about as anti-Christian as you can get. But if you watch the debate, Dr. Annie Bannister uh, just absolutely showers this guy with the love of Christ while also logically and philosophically uh, attacking his point of view uh, and showing him that the truth of the gospel matters. And so he's the perfect guy for the All Things All People podcast. And and I'm really excited for you to meet him through this show. Uh, before we get to the interview, I want to invite you to make sure that you Follow me at allthings.allpeople on Instagram. If you ever have any questions, make sure to email me at jeremy at allthingsallpeople.org. All of Dr. Bannister's information is in the show notes, but you can follow him on Instagram at, at Andy G. Bannister and be on the lookout for his new book about whether or not Muslims and Christians worship the same God coming out sometime in early spring of 2021 through InterVarsity Press. This guy's going to blow you away. Make sure to check him out. Make sure to follow up on the interview and let me know what you think. Let's get to it. Dr. Andy Bannister. My next guest holds a PhD in Islamic studies and is an adjunct research fellow at the Arthur Jeffries Center for the Study of Islam at the Melbourne School of Theology and is an adjunct professor at the University of Toronto and, and, and as he said, adjunct all over, um, which as you'll find out is, uh, is appropriate. He runs the Solas Center for Public Christianity in Scotland, whose goal is persuasively communicating the transforming truth of who Jesus is and empowering Christians to do the same. Prior to Solas, he was uh, the Canada director for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries and is still an adjunct speaker for RZIM. He is the author of books such as The Atheist Who Didn't Exist or The Terrible Consequences of Really Bad Arguments and the forthcoming Do Muslims and Christians Worship the Same God, which is coming out through InterVarsity Press sometime in March of 2021. He has been featured on programs such as Unbelievable, where he debated or conversed uh, with Peter Singer on the value of human life, which we'll certainly talk about today. And it is my pleasure and honor to have on the show today, Dr. Andy Bannister. Uh, Andy, thank you so much for being on the show. Jeremy, it's a, it's a pleasure. And thank you for getting up so early in the morning, <laughs> your time to make this possible. Well, the time difference is certainly in your favor, but uh, <laughs> it certainly is, <laughs> but it, it's, it's more than more than worth it. And uh, for those of you who, who are not familiar uh, with Dr. Bannister, make sure to check him out at andybannister.net. Uh, the, the website for the Solas Center is in the show notes and follow him on Instagram and all social media uh, at Andy G. Bannister. Um, have you, have you, I, I, I follow you myself and I see that pretty much every time you, you post anything, it's never apologetics and it's almost always you on a mountain somewhere. Uh, <laughs> has, has that, has that been in your recent history here? Have you been on the top of any mountains recently? Yeah. So I'm just back from, uh, from summer vacation and had a wonderful, uh, week last week in the English Lake District. And uh, my knees are still sore because I, I like doing quite sort of big kind of sort of stuff. So I did a, a, I did a, a 31 miles and 13,000 feet in one day and I got a 12 hour uh, expedition. Well. So I'm, I'm paying for that this week. But yeah, I love the mountains, love the outdoors. 
And uh, if people track my stuff, Jeremy, you'll see that also bleeds into the apologetics because one is the Islam and the atheism that we'll talk about, yes. the kind of argument from beauty and from mm -hmm. nature and those kind of things that intrigue people like C.S. Lewis and all. They've been yes. a big part of my kind of ministry as well. We often neglect that, I think, in our apologetics. Yeah. Well, and, and quite simply, uh, one of the better um, refutations of the idea that all religions are different paths leading to the top of the mountain. I've heard you negate that by saying <laughs> in my experience on top of mountains, not all paths lead to the top. And I, and so I think that that's really interesting equating it there, but uh, have you, have you, you've not had any experiences too horrible going down different paths up, up mountains, I hope. No, not at all. That's a real, also some real privileges as well. So uh, <laughs> oh, made it to the, uh, made it to the North face base camp of Everest a few years ago that's the highest i've been so it was a just an amazing experience but one of the things i found fascinating as well is when you meet people who don't have a faith in those settings beginning to say things like hey why do you think it is that we're drawn to beauty why is it that we invest time and energy climbing mountains there's no evolutionary advantage in putting a backpack on and you know working your way up eighteen thousand feet mm -hmm. uh, what is it that draws us to do that yeah. um and that's led to some fascinating conversations over the years yes and you've had quite a few fascinating conversations. I've heard you talk about um, your initial draw to study Islam, your PhD. Interestingly enough, for, for many apologists and philosophers, usually we center in on our own faith first and then pick up expertises. You sort of went in a roundabout way in studying Quranic studies in, in Islam. And I've heard you mention that that was because you were talking to Muslim friends, which for those who are unaware in the UK, there is, is a huge population um, and growing of, of uh, Muslims. And so you said that the initial draw to Islam and studying that was just not being able to answer questions that those people had for you. Is, is that what the first uh, drawing into studying the Quran and Islam at a high level was for you? That's right. So back in the 1990s, I began going to a place in London called Speaker's Corner, mm -hmm. part of one of our big parks in London, where on an afternoon you can stand on a ladder or a box and talk about anything and get a crowd. And one of my friends was using it as a platform to reach Muslims. I went along, uh, got rapidly sort of heckled and deconstructed by Muslims who had all kinds of wonderful questions and objections to the Christian faith that I'd never even thought about before. And uh, but just, just the sheer panic of being confronted with this yes. led me firstly to discover apologetics. I hadn't discovered it before. Um, really drove me to study, you know, my own theology. Um, but then also gave me a passion for really thinking deeply about Muslims and uh, and Islam. And so yeah, initially, Jeremy, that led to my undergraduate work, which was in Christian theology. Mm -hmm. So it was theology and philosophy. But then when it came to do doctoral work, I was actually, funnily enough, originally going to do something in New Testament. And then one of my sort of more sort of missionary minded friends looked at me and he went, well, he said, all the big questions in New Testament have been done. So mm -hmm. you could spend seven years studying John the Apostle's, you know, use yeah. of the comma in the first chapter of his gospel. Right. And of course, there is no punctuation in Greek, so you wouldn't get anywhere anyway. <laughs> um, or you could yeah. do something useful. Why don't you do Quranic mm -hmm. studies um, yes. where most of the big questions haven't been explored? And so it was, I think, that combination of wanting to do something that help with the outreach and the evangelism, mm -hmm. the apologetics, but also the fact that there are so many big questions around the Quran and Islam mm -hmm. and its origins that academics just really haven't spent the time on. Um, yes. So that was the draw. Very true. Well, Tom Wright has pretty much taken care of the New Testament for us. Yeah, so what, more, what more is there to do? What could we and, do? You know, <laughs> uh, Craig well, Evans and stuff. Yeah, well, plenty, plenty of heavy hitters. Well, and you, you are, you probably are uncomfortable hearing this, but as far as Christians go, you are one of the, the leading scholars in how to engage with, with Islam. Um, and I think that influence is only going to grow. And, and as I said, your book coming out in March uh, details the question of whether or not Christians mm -hmm. and Muslims worship the same God. And so for people who are listening, <clears throat> uh, many of whom are, are not as familiar with Islam as yep. they, they would like, that's the best question to begin with, in my opinion. And in a speech you gave in 2016 in, in Chicago on yep. the same topic, uh, while contrasting the relational aspects of Yahweh versus Allah, you said the only relationship that exists between humans and Allah, according to the Quran, is that of master and servant, not father or friend. And this, of course, falls in line perfectly with the literal meaning of Islam, for those unaware, which is submission and mm -hmm. Muslim which is submitted one. So with these intrinsic differences in mind between Yahweh and Allah, along with so many others, why is it that, in your opinion, so many people insist that Allah and Yahweh are in fact the same? 
Well, that's a great uh, question, Jeremy. And, and 2016 in Chicago was really my first major exposure to that question when when my friends there asked me to come and speak on it. And I sort of thought, oh, we'll get 30 or 40 people. And we got sort of six or 700 people. Yes. And also that professor at Wheaton College had just sort of come out and made that statement that they were the same God. Mm-hmm. Then I began digging around and finding, yes, the, 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 the sort of belief that they are the same is is all over the place. So Miroslav Volf, uh, leading Christian theologian, written many brilliant things, wrote a fairly sloppy book, uh, you know, Allah or a Christian response that argued for that. Uh, the Pope um, yeah. has said similar things, dating right back to Vatican II, and the Catholic Church has affirmed it's the same. There was a big theological survey of Christians in North America a couple of years ago that I think 70% of, of evangelicals assumed they were the same uh, mm-hmm. God. And I think the reasons for it are twofold. First is the way that that Islam uh, and comparative religion really is taught in in, in schools and seminaries. You know, you, it tends to go like this. Everything's sort of stacked up in columns side by side. So, you know, here's John, he's a Christian, uh, and here's Iqbal, he's a Muslim. Well, John goes to church, Iqbal goes to mosque. John reads the Bible, Iqbal reads the Quran. John follows Jesus, Iqbal follows Muhammad. And you just do that, mm-hmm. um, and people just grow up assuming, oh, it's basically the same, isn't it? It's just the, with some minor differences. And I think Christians imbibe that. And then I suppose the other bit of sloppy thinking that goes on is going, well, I suppose if there is God, there is only one God, right? And, and, and so when we talk about God, it must be the same in some way. And of course, here are Muslims who talk about, you know, being descended from Abraham and so forth. So, hey, why don't we just say they're just Abrahamic faiths and, and sort of squish them all together? So I think that's where the sloppiness begins. But as you've hinted there in the way you introduced this, this segment is that I think the question that is missed is what do we mean by the word God? When someone says they believe in God, mm-hmm. we, sim- we, we can't simply as Christians go, Oh, that's lovely. We need to go, okay, that's fascinating. Tell me about the God that you believe in. What is, what is he like? What's his attributes? What's his nature? Mm-hmm. And when you press into that question, the differences come out. Yes. Well, and, and as you well know, um, but unfortunately, like you said, not many Christians, at least in the West, um, are, are very familiar with is when you begin to, to pick apart the Quranic understanding of Allah and the biblical understanding of Yahweh, um, th- there are hum- huge differences. Um, have you, have you at, a, at a conversational level, have you had much experience or even success in helping people understand that we're not talking about the same being whatsoever? Well, I think two things on that. Yeah, absolutely. I think certainly when talking to sort of secular friends who are sort of bought into the all religions are the same, mm-hmm. um, I think it's been very helpful to come in so just gently, really, not not all guns blazing, just gently of, of teasing out, well, look, here are some major differences uh, in, in what is said. And I think you could illustrate that also in, in sort of fun ways. One illustration I've used for years is saying, look, if you and I were having a debate about who who is the president of the USA, and you say, well, it's Donald Trump. And I say, well, I think it's Donald Duck. Mm-hmm. We, we clearly both believe in one president. We even agree on the first name, but the character and the attributes are completely different. I, we agree about the office of president. We disagree about the nature of the office holder. Mm-hmm. And I think p- using those kind of illustrations, you can begin to get people to go, oh, okay, yeah, I'm beginning to see what you mean here. And then with Muslims, where I found it helpful, is often as Christians, we come straight in at Jesus, understandably, because he's the center of everything for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, Muslims, of course, struggle with the idea that Jesus is, in any sense, divine. And then we, we end up in all these complicated arguments about the Trinity. And a few years ago, I, I suppose, I began to figure out the problem is that Muslims have a different understanding of God. So when they hear Christians say Jesus belongs to the identity of God, in their minds, God is Allah. And Allah is, as we say, non-relational, non-personal, can't be known, isn't yeah, loved, hasn't suffered, all these things. And so it just doesn't, doesn't compute. So I found even with Muslims to go right back to, let's start with what we think God is like. And as we begin to understand those differences, um, we can, I think, have a, a fruitful conversation. And sometimes actually what's been helpful, I've had Muslims often say to me, well, I believe in a God of love. And I've then found it helpful to say, well, actually... I'm glad you do, because I think he is, but I don't think that's the God of the Quran, because mm-hmm. love ultimately has to be demonstrated. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the God of the Bible has demonstrated his love, love in action, as we see in Jesus and the cross. Mm-hmm. Allah and the Quran hasn't. So if you do believe that God is love, then really what you need to do is come on home 
yes. to the god of the, the god of the Bible, whose doors are flung wide open for uh, for you know returning atheists, returning Muslims, returning Hindus. Yes. You know, God. I always like to say, God, God. You know, Jesus died for Muslims as well as everybody else. Um, so. Yeah, and, uh, and it's a it's a free for all invitation. Yes. Well, and and you you hit on an interesting concept that I think. Um, in studying religion at, a, at an academic level, but then also at a popular level is very often missed, which is the idea that just because the Quran or the Hadith says that Muslims believe this, you and I both know that most Muslims, as well as most humans, have a, a different set of lived beliefs or lived yeah. religion. And and that's that can make it difficult if the only understanding that you have of a religion is what their holy text says and and much of popular islamic belief comes not just from the quran but from the hadith which is essentially supplemental text uh, for those who are unfamiliar but even more interesting to me in my own studies is that there's quite a few beliefs based off of um secondary even more secondary texts such as uh surat rasul allah's the life of muhammad um which is non-canonical uh, which to, to those unaware means that it is not considered holy scripture but uh, many muslims especially in regard to like um, to Muhammad's night journey and things like that. A lot of these beliefs come from sources like that, which are not scripture in any yeah. regard. Uh, how, how do Muslims reconcile this? And, and how should Christians be prepared to present things like this to Muslims who might be unaware that a lot of their beliefs come from non-scriptural sources? Well, I want to say again a couple of um, things there, Jeremy. I think the first thing is I always want to be very, very fair to uh, to Muslim friends, and equally mm-hmm. if we talk about atheism, I would say the same. You know, Christians are not immune. Absolutely. So I mean, to go, it, it's you know, it's often you know, it's interesting how many of our beliefs as Christians, if we're if we're not careful, you actually dig into them and go, oh, that's not biblical, or that it comes from denominational or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, or you know, I'm you know very conscious. You guys are heading into election season. We've been through ours last year. For Christians, the way that sometimes our politics and our theology merge, yes. and uh, and going actually, you know, that's more of a political position, not a, yes. not a biblical position. So Muslims are not immune from that, but I think are mm-hmm. more prone to it because Islam had doesn't tra- hasn't traditionally encouraged the sort of deep study or a reading of the Quran that uh, certainly even the evangelical tradition has. Uh, for the Bible. So, you know, for those of us who are evangelicals, certainly the more conservative persuasion, you know, we have drummed into us when we're from, you know, the, when we become Christians upwards, that actually studying the Bible is important. Mm-hmm. The Quran, on the other hand, most Muslims don't study it, don't read it. They they have it, they receive it third hand by the mosque or mm-hmm. some other Muslim teachers. So that can create a problem for them. So the way that I find it helpful uh, here, Jeremy, is I think that, um, when I meet a Muslim, you know, espousing a belief, particularly as one I don't know, I know isn't in the Quran, but even for listeners who are not familiar with the Quran mm-hmm. and might not be sure, just say to your Muslim friend, that's really fascinating. I um, Tell me more about that belief. And, and where does that come from? Where, where in the Quran does that come from? That can just be a very helpful question. Okay, I'm yes. trying to learn more about Islam. Could you show me in the Quran where that idea comes mm-hmm. from? And uh, often they can that you'll often get the embarrassed silence, and sure. you, know, you often run into well, I don't really know. I'm not a I'm not yeah. a scholar, mm-hmm. um, and that can be interesting. And sometimes if you want to, but then you can push further and say, well, would you by any might mean would you by any chance mind next time you're at the mosque asking your imam, you know, and then come back to me because I really yes. want to know. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, I think mm-hmm. I'm a great believer in the power of questions. So rather Absolutely. than turn around and say, hey, that's not in the Quran. Mm-hmm. Just gently ask the question. Yeah. And we should say too, and I know your goal is never embarrass uh, anybody, especially not a, non, a non-believer. Um, and I should say too, to any Christian listening to this, take that as a case study for how we need to be prepared to, to answer our own uh, yes. beliefs and questions, because it, it would be very easy. In fact, I've seen it happen many times is that a Christian sets out to disprove somebody. And then when questioned on their own basic beliefs as well, they, they struggle. And so uh, not that we need to be prepared to answer every question, um, but we should keep that in mind as we, as we seek out conversations with our, our Muslim friends. Um, and so one thing that I find interesting in comparing Christianity and Islam, uh, as you've spent quite a bit of your, your academic life doing, um, is epistemology or the view of truth in, in both. And that, that really becomes one of the central issues in not just comparative religion, but apologetics and, and evangelism. And uh, in an Islamic view of truth, the topic of abrogation has to come up or, or the idea that um, 
that one law or rule or teaching later on, whether by Muhammad or one of the other uh, caliphs that came after him, a later ruling supersedes an old ruling. So therefore the old ruling is no longer true or applicable. And this can be foreign to Christians because typically we, we like to think of truth as if it's true 2000 years ago, it's still very true today. Um, how does the, the average Muslim, because we're talking about actually sharing our faith, not just with imams, but the Muslim that we work with, how does the average Muslim, uh, how much do they know of, of abrogation and things like that uh, in, in the Quran and the Hadith? Yeah. Well, again, it's a great, a great question. And, and again, as I answered the previous one, yeah. um, Jeremy, to be, to be fair, uh, yeah. you know, we, ha- we have something not totally dissimilar to abrogation going on in Christianity, of course, in that most of us as, as, as Christians, except perhaps, you know, perhaps our Messianic Jewish friends mm-hmm. would be large chunks of the old Testament law yeah. that we've, we've set aside. We don't, mm-hmm. you know, we don't feel the need to be worried about wearing things of mixed fabric. We're probably quite happily have a, you know, a bacon sandwich and so <laughs> forth because, you know, we believe that particularly that old Testament sort of a uh, civil law has mm-hmm. been fulfilled in Christ. I mean, we now live in the new covenant, not the old and, and so on and so forth. Right. Difference for us, of course, that took place over 1400 years of history mm-hmm. and in a different context, you know, you and I are, uh, are not wandering Israelites in the desert. Right. We are living in a very different setting and t- under the time of Christ. Islam, on the other hand, that period of, of abrogation is just, in some cases, just a few years between one mm-hmm. verse being, you know, revealed, quote unquote, revealed, and another one coming along to, to replace it. And uh, and I think really what is, what's going on in Islam uh, is, you know, Muhammad is sort of composing a lot of this Quranic material on the fly, right. and the, situa- the situations around him changes, so what he is saying changes, and that then gives later... Uh, later Quranic scholars, quite a problem. The most famous mm-hmm. example would be the so-called sword verse in the Quran, Surah mm-hmm. 9, verse 5, uh, which talks about fighting against the infidels, uh, lying in wait for them with every stratagem of war and, 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 and slaughtering them. Um, that was con- That's considered by later Quranic scholars to abrogate or replace something like up to 124 more peaceful and moderate verses. Yeah. And that fits Muhammad's biography, because when Muhammad began his career, uh, as a as a as a as a prophet and a teacher in 610 AD uh, there in uh, there in Mecca, um, when he then moves up into Medina a few years later, uh, he then gets into political power, and uh, now he's gone from being a religious minority to being a religious majority in in power. Suddenly, the whole situation's changed. Muslims today. Many of them aren't aware of this issue. I think your your Muslim in the street, as it were, sure. would be unaware of this uh of of this issue and so sometimes you need to gently introduce them to it mm-hmm. and again do it gently because again if you come across a sort of too gung-ho i've had muslims turn around and say well this isn't true you're making this up yeah. there are also some muslim sects that don't believe in abrogation so again mm-hmm. it's worth asking a muslim friend uh, about this but those who are aware then exactly i think i like to sort of press into the kind of like well how how do you process that with you know the quran is supposed to be the eternal word of God and Muslims have a much higher view of, of scripture in a, in a sense than, than Christians do. We believe that, that, that the God of the Bible breathed his word through the human authors, as it says in, in, in the book of Timothy. Um, but Muslims believe that the Quran has existed from eternity there on tablets of stone in heaven beside Allah. Mm-hmm. So if that is the case, what's going on with abrogation and verses being removed and verses being changed and so on. And, and even more so too, at a, at a, at an even more basic level, I would say, um, as you said, Muslims do have a higher view of, of their text in the sense, not that they have maybe any more respect than a Christian would, but, but literally they have a higher view, uh, as you said, it, it exists next to Allah, but then also it was perfectly dictated through Gabriel to Muhammad. And so what I found interesting is that if you, if you read the Quran in chronological order from as best as we can tell from the time that Muhammad was in the cave, first receiving the word to the end of his life, it seems as if Allah's character has changed. Um, And so, you know, as he's, as he's saying these things, especially in regards to people of the book and, and some of these other things, not not only at a, uh, to an understanding of abrogation or things changing, it seems almost as if Allah, who is, as you said, utterly transcendent and cannot be known and is unchanging. Um, it changes, and it seems to play into the idea, of course, as you and I would believe that that Muhammad, as you said, is is sort of winging it. There, that there's times where he's 
he's speaking to whatever need is in front of him. And as you said, these scholars that, that assembled the Quran and the Hadith had to make up quite a bit of ground as far as explaining that. Um, and so, yes. uh, so, so yeah, it seems as if that would, uh, as you said, the Muslim on the street would be very unfamiliar with that process. Very much so. And I think, um, I think many, many Muslims are unfamiliar mm -hmm. uh, with how their Quran came to be. I mean, what's interesting, you referred to the Hadith uh, a few minutes back, Jeremy, mm -hmm. you know, that collection, which is for those who are unfamiliar with that term, that's the mm -hmm. collection of traditions about what Muhammad said and did. Um, material that's not there in the Quran that was assembled some hundred years after his death. Mm -hmm. And there's some really interesting stuff in there about the compilation of the Quran. And one of the most controversial stories in there is the story of what happened under the third caliph, under the caliph Uthman, um, a couple of decades or so after Muhammad's death, where uh, reports reached the caliph that Muslim soldiers out on the battlefields are beginning to disagree and argue over what the Quran says. And Uthman's solution to this is to basically put an order out to the four corners of the then Muslim empire that every manuscript or part thereof be brought to him. Um, he uh, has Muhammad's former secretary, Zayd ibn Tabit, uh, assemble from those an authoritative version of the Quran, and then all the other manuscripts are burnt, mm -hmm. which is really interesting. Now, here's the thing. I use that illustrate. I use that story at a lecture I was giving a few years ago at University of, uh, of Alberta up in Edmonton in Canada. And after the, the lecture, a public lecture on the origins of the Quran, these uh, three uh, Muslim medical students came up to, to speak to me, beautifully attired uh, women in their, you know, impeccable in their, in their hijabs and mm -hmm. everything and lovely, um, you know, sort of uh, manner and so forth. And they came up to me, they very politely, they took five minutes to get round to it because they were being very polite and, and very Middle Eastern, but basically <laughs> accused me of lying. Sure. Um, didn't quite use that word, but that was obvious where they were going. And I, so I remember saying to them, I said, have you never heard that story before? And they went, well, no. I said, but it's in the Hadith. They went, we, I'm not sure that it is. I went, okay, do you, um, do you have a Muslim website that you would go to, 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 to consult the Hadith? They went, yes, we would use the Muslim Society of North America website. I went, brilliant, get your phone out, pull up that website. And I said, okay, type in this Hadith number. And I pulled the Hadith up on her phone, on her chosen website. And I've never seen, literally in front of me, someone illustrate what it means when you say the blood drained from their face. You could see <laughs> her go pale. Sure. And I went, okay. I said, your reaction tells me that you see the problem here. She said, I've never seen this before. Mm -hmm. She said, why have my imams not mentioned this? I said, well, that is a question for them and not for <laughs> right. me. But I said, yeah. you are clearly brilliant young scholars. You wouldn't be on the program you're on if you weren't. I think you can see what the implications are. You now need to go away and think about that. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, many Muslims. Yeah. And, you know, here are three, you know, mm -hmm. the most brilliant, you know, intellects in, 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 in their generation, presumably to be on that medical program mm -hmm. and had never been told mm -hmm. that the Quran, you know, early manuscripts were, 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 were burnt to ashes by the leader of their, uh, their community. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it should be said too, to anyone listening, whether you're Christian or not, uh, what, what, what Dr. Bannister and I are suggesting is not that Christianity doesn't have instances that are problematic and that Islam is full of them, but instead that uh, we as Christians should be intimately familiar with, with these types of scenarios within, within our own beliefs, because, uh, as, as we're finding through stories like that, when, you, when, you're, when you're unfamiliar, when they're, when they're brought up to you, it can be hugely problematic in trying to explain uh, what you believe and, and, and even more so in, in convincing yeah. someone else. Yeah, and on that very point, um, Jeremy, thank you for, 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 for making that point. I always point out to people, look, the, the Bible has a, has a history. We have manuscripts that have a, have a history, mm -hmm. and there are, there, are, there are issues that scholars have had to work through. But here's the interesting thing. If you want to go and look at the history of the Bible, you look at the manuscripts and, and study where perhaps one manuscript differs slightly from another or so on and so forth, um, best place to go is the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts at a Dallas Theological Seminary headed up by Daniel Wallace, Christian mm -hmm. scholar. Christians, in other words, have done the world-leading work in digitizing, yeah. computerizing, analyzing. And we've been doing that work for 2,000 years. Well, Christians mm -hmm. have never shied away from studying the origins of the Bible. And there was certainly never in Christian history a wholesale burning and destruction mm -hmm. of, uh, of manuscripts. Scholars have always been willing to study them in the open and so on. In Islam, mm -hmm. on the other hand, 
it's been hidden away, the work hasn't been done, scholars mm-hmm. get very nervous about it. Only really in the last few years have we seen Muslim scholars even willing to admit the Quran might have some issues. Mm-hmm. And one of the academic projects I've been involved in for the past few years is a project called Quran Gateway. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a study tool for the Quran online. And we've got thousands of um, sort of uh, manuscript images built into that. But it's taken Christian scholars helped by some secular scholars to do that work. Uh, Muslim scholars haven't haven't done it, mm-hmm. and that's what I say to people is the is the difference. I think in Islam there's been a real fear uh, about addressing those mm-hmm. those issues. Yeah. For biblical scholarship, there's been a real willingness to engage with the with the tough questions. Yes, yes. Well, and and it should be said that while most of Islam does not seek out to be questioned, Christians historically, as you've said, have welcomed question, have welcomed criticism, have welcomed uh, you know, the searching and that's illustrated by another part of your career. As I, as I said, in sort of our virtual green room is that you are a little bit of a a rarity in that most Christian philosophers, apologists, and academics pick one field and say, I'm never going to leave this field. I'm never going to answer a question outside of Islamic studies, but yet here you are on unbelievable, which is a program, uh, (laughs) with, uh, Justin Brierley, who, uh, does a lot through uh, premier Christian radio. Um, if you haven't, watch unbelievable make sure that you do that because uh it 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 always pits a christian scholar academic thinker uh with a non-christian academic or thinker and in you were on that show conversing with peter singer uh who is an extremely well-known in the in the world of philosophy of course utilitarian philosopher and to those unaware utilitarianism for those uh, who don't know is the philosophical belief that actions are right or wrong depending on the extent to which they promote happiness or prevent pain. Uh, This has led Singer to become a leading proponent uh, in some forms of infanticide, uh, saying, uh, and I'm going to try my best not to quote him out of context, but uh, saying that killing a newborn baby is is never equivalent to killing a person, as he would say. And if he were sitting with us right now, he would would want me to clarify that he has a definition of person that most of us do not have. Um, but uh, that is a being who wants to go on living. Uh, and he, he, he places a lot of weight on human life insofar as a person can make choices and expect a future. Uh, he's also said very controversial things regarding humans with disabilities and essentially anyone who lacks the cognitive function to make choices and experience life. And when you debated him, uh, if you go to that episode of Unbelievable on YouTube and you go to the comment section, uh, there are many people, Christian and non-Christian, who comment on your demeanor, Andy, <laughs> and ability to maintain uh, civility with someone who stands uh, as a, about as opposed to your worldview as, as possible. Um, and so what, what was that experience like discussing the value of human life with someone who shares almost nothing with you in regards to that topic? That's a great. Uh, that's a great question, Jeremy. And I have to say, I really enjoyed mm-hmm. conversing with, with 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 Peter. I think one of the things we can sometimes forget as Christians, you know, we come across these folks, uh, you know, Peter Singer, Richard Dawkins, and others. And I think because they are so vitriolic in their in their attacks on Christianity or in their atheistic worldview, we can imagine they can be sort of really terrible people. But actually, often they're really kind of quite nice people. Mm-hmm. And so Peter and I, in, in the real green room there. Uh, mm-hmm. behind unbelievable we had a lovely time we got on very very well um i i had a trip coming up to australia so we chatted about that mm-hmm. and you know he's the kind of person i would happily have gone for a beer with afterwards or a coffee if i'm dealing with baptists <laughs> and um but then of course we got into the, the discussion but those two things go together because i think if we can remember that our atheist friends are, are, are human they're people made in the image of god and that our job is to win the person not the argument that can be really really helpful but yeah absolutely the key thing for me with peter that i found fascinating was was where you locate human value and the way he shifted in the conversation because he began i think from memory really not liking the idea of human rights Yes. Um, he elsewhere, he's described that as speciesist, that, yes. you know, it's unfair to grant, you know, rights to humans, but not to not to other uh, forms of life. But very quickly, um, that unraveled, I mean, the, the utilitarian piece unraveled. And I remember, you know, the most uncomfortable moment in the conversation, I felt slightly bad doing it, but I felt I had to, especially because he had talked about this elsewhere, was his mother. And his mother had uh, had, had died uh, a, few, a few years before of dementia. Yeah. And Peter had spent an astronomical amount of money on, you know, uh, on care, on um, palliative care for her and looking after her in old age. 
But this is the same Peter who elsewhere has said that we should just, you know, effectively almost forcibly euthanize people when they become old and useless. Yeah. useless. And in fact, one Jewish philosopher wrote a critique of Peter, wrote an essay called Other People's Mothers, which yeah. was quite a great line, really. And yeah. it was interesting to see the inconsistency. And then towards the end, the most fascinating moment for myself and for Justin Briley, who's the host of that show, was when Peter suddenly discovered that he did actually believe in moral values partway through the <laughs> conversation. If you remember, you watched yeah. it. Mm -hmm. but, well, actually, I do actually believe there are real moral values and duties mm -hmm. out yeah. there. And uh, of course, that's a position, you know, effectively known as Platonism. The idea yeah. is there's a realm out there where abstract things yeah. like, you know, thou shalt not, you know, take innocent life somehow exist free floating. And yeah. it's a really weird position. And I remember at the end of the conversation saying to Peter, you know, the best place to locate those moral values, quite frankly, is in the, in the mind of God. Mm -hmm. And I also remember ending the conversation by being very cheeky and saying, Peter, I'm very encouraged that, you know, in this show, <laughs> you've moved from, you know, utter atheism to kind of Platonism. Yeah. Um, that was the very first step that C.S. Lewis mm -hmm. took. C.S. Yeah. Lewis yeah. moved from atheism to Platonism and then to theism mm -hmm. and into Christianity. So I'm cheekily yeah. saying, come on home, Peter, come on home. Yeah. Well, and you're, you're remembering it quite well because I, I was, I've, I've watched it a couple of times. Um, once, just because that's a program that I enjoy, but then also in just preparing for our conversation. Um, by the way, the immense amount of research that you did for that, I, I can't imagine how much of his material you read because it seemed as if every time you, you started a sentence, you were quoting him back to him. Um, and so I don't know if that's... So it wasn't as much as it sounds, Jeremy. Really? I, spent three or four, I think three or four days before the show, like obviously you were researching me, I just yeah. read a lot of his stuff mm -hmm. and you know, underlying yeah. things, but it does help very much if you're talking to someone like a, like a Peter <laughs> that you, you do know what they've well, said. You bet, and, and, and he's not, he's not well known because he's easy to debate or converse um, with. So I, I'm sure that the research helped, but yeah, you're talking about the, the Platonism. The, there was a weird moment, as you said, where you began to suggest that the good capital T capital G in Platonism is, is simply found in Christian theism. And, and, and you could tell he, he wasn't willing to make that jump, of course. Um, but, but yeah, as you said, the utilitarian principles that he was espousing began to get, become a little bit more difficult to defend when you have this abstract morality um, that's somehow objective, but also impossible to, to find. But um, so, so yeah, in, in Peter Singer's by, by no means the, <laughs> the average non-believer. Uh, he, he's, he's an extremely well-educated and controversial figure who says things that, as I said, there's, there's many groups that when you think about a Peter Singer, they, they do not like what he, what he believes. Um, but you know, you as director of Solus have, have attempted to bring a conversation about Christianity to universities, cafes, pubs there in the UK. Uh, it, it seems to me that you are very involved in not just the high level academic conversations with the Peter Singers, but also in the more common popular conversations with non-believers, um, as we said in, in pubs and wherever else it might be. Um, it, it, often when we think of discussing Christianity in these settings, especially people who are interested in apologetics, we, we think if we have the moral argument in one hand and the cosmological in the other, that's all we'll need. And, and I don't, particularly believe that that's the case usually. Um, in your experiences, what are non-believers actually looking to hear from Christians? And what questions are they actually asking that, that aren't being represented in the caricatures yeah. of atheists or non-believers, I should say? Well, it's interesting you say that to go, the, the term caricature is a good one, because I think that particularly for those of us, you know, who love apologetics and love theology, if we are not careful, you know, we end up, answering that either answering the questions that people are asking 30 or 40 years ago mm -hmm. um and often quite frankly answering the way that doesn't engage with people you know a great illustration actually of someone who figured this out again in our virtual green room we were talking about tim keller who i think mm -hmm. you're a great fan of yeah. as i am you know keller wrote that very influential book a few years ago the reason for god yeah it's about five, 20 years old now i think five, five it's five feet away from me well worn there out. you go five feet away it's about 10 feet away from me <laughs> um, <laughs> but then of course tim figured out a few years ago that lots of people he was now engaging with were not ready uh, for that that book. They weren't asking those kind of questions, and that's when he wrote his next book in that sort of uh, in that sort of genre. He wrote Making Sense of God, mm -hmm. which takes a whole different range of questions. 
Oh, to give another illustration, I had a friend of mine who did a university uh, mission week on uh, at Oxford University and then Cambridge University. So our two biggest, you know, most uh, mm-hmm. imminent universities here in the UK. And she made, they made a list of all the questions that came up in the Q&A and put it on her blog. And it was fascinating. There were none of the, you know, there's nothing on the moral argument, nothing on right. science. It was all things like, how can I find peace? Um, where where can I find, where's my identity to be located? Where is there hope? It was all things around those more existential things. And I think COVID-19 and the pandemic has accelerated that. People are asking mm-hmm. things about hope, certainty, suffering, meaning, all those things. Mm-hmm. And if we're not careful as Christians, we miss that because we just continue overdosing on the philosophical stuff. Mm-hmm. So I always say to Christians who want to engage uh, well and who love apologetics, by all means, you know, learn the moral argument and stuff. It, you know, it's good to have in the back of your head. Mm-hmm. But the best thing we can do is be getting to know our friends and neighbours and colleagues mm-hmm. and just beginning to listen to what the questions really, really are, because yeah. I think they, they bubble up. Uh, all over the place but yeah I find far more things around you know beauty meaning truth significant hope purpose and actually as you just talked about with Peter Singer human value Mm -hmm. Um, that to me has been by far the most productive conversation opener in the last 15 to 20 years is when I'm talking to somebody who espouses you know a belief about human value often they'll make some statement about justice Mm -hmm. you know right now it's the Black Lives Matter stuff and racism you know, to me, and you want to be very careful how we wade into that, because boy, there are some very complex issues. But I do like to gently ask the question, say, around the Black Lives Matter stuff, the question I often will come back to somebody with is just out of interest, why do you think that any lives matter? Mm -hmm. Don't just say any lives matter, because that's a trigger. And that is (laughs) not a good place to go. You can ask the question, why does any life matter? Because I do believe that black lives matter. I do believe that, you know, um, as the value of other people too. But, um, but why? And I think atheism has no answers there because it, yeah. can, it sees us as just configurations of atoms. Christianity mm-hmm. with the idea that we're built, made in the image of God does give a value for basis and dignity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you can get from right from this very controversial, you know, issue that's tearing our yeah. societies apart uh, to the, un- the issue underlying it. Yes. Uh, and I think if you can learn to do that and it comes through practice and as I say, Tim Keller's mm-hmm. book, making sense of God, um, Randy Newman's book, Questioning Evangelism, is another brilliant resource for, for teaching people how to just ask questions yeah. and to listen to our friends and then answer the questions that they're really asking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, as, as, as you said, and sometimes we can be guilty of creating a non-believer in our head and in our classrooms. And oftentimes when you actually meet non-believers, they're nothing like the ones that we hear about in the apologetics yeah. classes and podcasts and things like that. So we have to, we have to be careful not to create this, uh, this straw man atheist. And then when you meet one, whether it's a Peter singer or somebody at a pub, they're almost never quite that simple <laughs> to, to converse <laughs> with. <laughs> um, it, I don't know how it is in the UK. Uh, but it, at the moment it seems as if we have a generation coming up. I, I, I'm horrible with labels, but it seems as if usually we call them Generation Z now. Um, but what have you seen out of this, this younger generation who's coming into maturity now? Are, are they the ones asking the more complex questions about peace and justice and value? Yes, I think very much so. I think what I'm fascinated by is, you know, when I talk in sort of churches and those kind of contexts, and I say that I spend a lot of time, say, on university campuses, dealing with, you know, talk, engaging with students and so forth, you know, a lot of people of, you know, my generation and above will be, oh, gosh, that must be so tough. They must be, you know, are they not really not interested? To which I said, no, the opposite's true. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're deeply interested mm-hmm. uh, in spiritual questions. Um, what they don't think is that Christianity has any, has any meaningful answers. Sure. And mm-hmm. it's our job, to, I think, to stand in that gap and to listen and take their questions seriously and then say, mm-hmm. actually, I think Christianity and the message of Jesus has a lot to say here. But yeah, boy, talk about a generation that's, that's searching. Yes. Um, and what I think is interesting is things that as Christians, if we're not careful, depending on where we're coming from, we, we react against politically, you know, mm-hmm. think of the you know, Extinction Rebellion, Black Lives Matter, all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I often say to Christians, just, just, just pipe down for a moment and look at where those things are coming from. There's a cry of the heart that's coming out there. And yes, it may be going off in the wrong direction at times, but that doesn't mean that the questions that are being asked about, you know, environmental justice or racial justice or how we build a fairer society, those are gospel issues. And uh, I get excited that people are asking those questions. I think a generation ago, people were just happy to, you know, 
you know, give a give a young person a you know a digital device and a Netflix subscription, and they were content. Mm-hmm. I think now they're they're realizing they they've been sold a lie, and that actually <laughs> those things don't ultimately mm-hmm. satisfy. Um, but obviously, the church has got a job um, mm-hmm. because sometimes there's a danger that you know when we align ourselves as Christians too much with the political powers, people then reject the political powers and think that the, the church is part of it. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a real job for those of us who are followers of Jesus to go, no, 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 no. The, the church is not the same as a particular a p- particular po- yeah. uh, political setup. The church is not even the same as a societal setup. Mm-hmm. You look where the church is growing the most rapidly now in places like China and Iran and, and those kind of places. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's an exciting time to be a Christian, yes. but we also need to do some thinking about the questions that we're asking and the way answering and the way we're answering them. Yes. Yes. I, 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 I think you're spot on and it's a beautiful way to look at it, that we should be excited at these, at these, as you said, gospel issues that are bubbling up in, in very non-gospel centered parts of our, of our societies. Um, so, so with that in mind, I, I, I want to finish our time today by just answering a few questions. Um, and, and none of these seem to be from a, a perspective that, uh, from a non-believer. These are all people who, when I posted on social media that I was talking with you, they jumped at the opportunity to, to ask you a question. And so um, uh, the first one is uh, from Josh. And uh, he he is asking a question about that, that varied nature that I was talking about with you, where you've spoken quite a bit to both Muslims and non-believers, non-believing atheists. And he says, in debating both Muslims and atheists, has there been anything about apologetics or evangelisms, uh, evangelism that has been universal or transferable between the two? Yeah, well, thank you for that question, um, Josh. I mean, the, the, the practical reason why I've ended up doing both, if I had to be really make a confession to make here, is simply I, I find if I, if I study too much of the same thing for too long, I get bored. Mm-hmm. So my academic <laughs> work's in Islam, and after sort of seven or eight years doing that for the PhD, I was like, I, I need a break. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and now, having done a lot of atheism, I'm, like, I'm actually enjoying getting back, getting back into engaging with Muslims. So it's, it's really been a sense of you know, responding to, to what's out there in front of me mm-hmm. and also trying to keep the thing interesting. In terms of the questions, um, the connections, I think, Josh, you're, you're, you're right. Um, I think there are some commonalities. One of the ways I, I've explored those commonalities in the book that's just coming, that's coming out next March, the Do Muslims and Christians Worship the Same God book, I introduce, I mean, it's not new to me. I partly mm-hmm. borrowed it from Tom Wright and then manipulated it slightly. There's a grid <laughs> I use for comparing belief systems. And there's various versions of these flying around. Yeah. But the one I found helpful is to go for this one. Uh, you know, um, is there a God and what is he like? Um, what does it mean to be human? Um, what's gone wrong with the world and what's the solution? And what's interesting when you put those four questions out there, mm-hmm. um, you do see some commonalities uh come through and i think one of the commonalities that comes through i think between islam and uh, and atheism is around that third question what's gone wrong with the world mm-hmm. both try to answer it in terms of behavior to go humans just aren't behaving themselves right. you know islam is like here's the you know here's sharia law here's the quran if 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 we just kept god's commandments then the world would be a better place and atheism is not far off from that of going, mm-hmm. look, if we were all just progressive and, and, and nice to each other yeah. and just thought about our environmental footprint and whatever the issue of the day is, the world would be a better place. Um, and what I think is interesting is that's in radical contrast, I think, to the gospel that mm-hmm. says, look, that those are, that's all great. I mean, those, those are not bad ideas. But the problem is we don't have the power yeah. to live differently. And I think both, so I think in one sense, I think Islam and atheism are actually quite similarly aligned out there. And then the other place that they're aligned, funnily enough, increasingly, is particularly around technology uh, with this growing dream among some technologists that one day we can upload our personalities to the cloud, you know, mm-hmm. the singularity, Ray Kurzweil and all those kind of ideas. Um, transhumanism would be another sort of strand of that, of that thing. That's not dissimilar to, to Islam whose idea of an, of an eternity is a great party in the sky. You know, the mm-hmm. Quran offers out, you know, rivers of wine, fruit trees, water, and, yeah. and virgins for the young men to enjoy. Interestingly, that those, those views of the future are not dissimilar. And again, yeah. Yeah. Christianity, huge contrast there, that it's a relational future that's mm-hmm. offered. You read Revelation 21, you know, God dwelling with us, wiping every tear from our eye. I was walking and mm-hmm. talking with Jesus again as Adam and Eve walked with, with God in the garden. So I think, yeah, they, they, there are more similarities than you would, uh, you would appreciate actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, wonderful. Um, I, I, 
<clears throat> that shows a depth of, of understanding of, of both of them that, that certainly we should all be striving for. Um, uh, next question, uh, in a little bit of a, a different manner, uh, comes from Instagram, uh, at mild keen star, which, uh, I don't, I don't have a first name, but, uh, uh, how should Christians deal with the unbiblical desire for 100% certainty in their beliefs? Oh, there's a, there's a question, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I remember as a young Christian struggling with that one because being, you know, of an inquiring mind, I sort of felt I, I needed to know, you know, absolutely everything. And, and every minor question I came across became a showstopper. And then, you know, years ago, an old uh, a friend of mine who was a Christian philosopher gave me a very helpful sort of um, sort of thought process for dealing with that. He sort of suggested, you know, why don't you think about, you know, envisaging in your mind two boxes into which you sort your questions, showstoppers, questions that you have mm-hmm. to answer. If you doubt that Jesus rose from the grave, okay, you need to get that one dealt with. That's pretty yeah. fundamental. On the other hand, if you're lying awake at night, night wondering what on earth the Nephilim are doing at the beginning of Genesis, that's a great question. Yeah. But really? Do you want to stand yeah. before God and their judgment and go, well, the reason I wasn't a, a, a full and vibrant Christian is I just couldn't work out what was going on there. Yeah. That surely is a minor order question. The trouble is we often get those things mixed up i mean at the risk of you know causing your phone lines or whatever to light up you know you take the <laughs> the age of the earth question you know in the yeah. beginning of genesis which christians have divided over sadly horribly yeah and that's some, some, because people on both sides of that debate have sometimes been tempted to make what is a not i do not think a central question and have made it central and started demonizing people who believe differently so i think divide your questions in two it will answer the questioner um, for the things that really matter, uh, the identity of Jesus, resurrection, so forth, reliability of scripture, I think to an extent, mm-hmm. keep those central um, and have an inquiring mind on the other things. But also then I guess ultimately remember we are trusting in a person, uh, not trying to just master some body of, of theology. Time and time again, I find it helpful, uh, Jeremy. I don't think it's an accident because scripture does this, right? The analogy of marriage is so helpful. You know, I've been married for 22 years uh, on Saturday, I think, is our wedding anniversary. <laughs> and I, need, I should need to check or I might not make 23. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there's vast amounts I know about my wife. Mm-hmm. There's also things I, I don't and questions I have. I can't have 100% certainty mm-hmm. in our relationship. For all I know, when I'm out at work, she is conducting a, a, a wild affair with the, with the gentleman who lives next door. Yes, he's a one-legged war veteran in his 70s, but you never know. Um, but do I need that 100% certainty? Is mm-hmm. 90% certainty mm-hmm. okay? Yeah. And I think for those of us who are inquiring thoughtful types, yeah, we need to remember that mm-hmm. I don't think absolute certainty exists. That, you know, yeah. if God's wired you to ask questions, brilliant. Jesus loves an honest yes. seeker. But don't let niggling questions keep you from placing mm-hmm. trust. I think we have way greater, we have pl- plenty enough evidence to allow us to trust and enough gaps that actually we need trust because mm-hmm. God at times wants to go, you know what? Trust me on this. Yes. Wonderful. Uh, just a couple more. Um, and then I will let you get on with what I assume is, is your, <laughs> your busy schedule. Uh, but, uh, this is back to, uh, specifically a question on Islam and it comes from Glenn and he says, I've heard that Muslims celebrate the idea of a perfect sacrifice. Is this something that can be used to share the gospel with them? And, it, and I should say, I, I have a feeling he's, he's asking about, um, Eid al-Adha, um, which is it, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, of course. Uh, but for the the listeners, is the the Islamic celebration of the uh, sacrifice or almost sacrifice of of uh, Ishmael actually, um, as opposed to yes, uh, yeah, Isaac in in the Christian and Jewish telling. So so uh, is this something that uh, you've seen used effectively to contextualize the gospel to Muslims? Yeah, the answer is, is yes. And for f- folks who are not familiar with, with that, yes, the Quran contains the story, borrows a lot of stories from uh, from Christianity and Judaism. And one of the stories that's come across is, is the story of Abraham and his son and the sacrifice. Now, the Quran is unclear as to which son it is. Mm-hmm. What's interesting, very early Islamic tradition just basically went with the Bible and went, oh, it was Isaac. And then the shift comes in later Islamic theology and it becomes Ishmael. And it's tried to, you know, and later Muslim theologians use this to try and sort of, you know, put, draw a really big line between Islam and 
and, and Judaism and so forth. But the sacrifice is there. And the story in the Quran is is, is similar to the story in, in, in the Bible that, you know, there they go up the mountain and, uh, and lo and behold, God provides uh, a, a substitute um, for uh, for Abraham's son, and so the mm-hmm. uh, the ram dies rather than uh, rather than uh, Abraham's son. Mm-hmm. And Muslims commemorate that today in the festival of Eid. Now that raises all kinds of questions, right? You know, why was a sacrifice needed? Um, what is a sub- what's the, what's going on with the substitute, and so on and so forth? There's the problem with the Quran. I would say, Jeremy, is that it alludes to things, but then doesn't give the rest of the theology. So of right. course, you trace that theme through the Bible. We come all through the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. We have particularly the, the blood on the doorposts and the Exodus, you know, right the way through to the Last Supper. And then as Jesus takes that, reshapes all of that Old Testament story around himself. Um, but what you can do, I think, from the Quran is open up the question of, of sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Um, and where I try and get to connects back to something we talked about right at the start and the identity of God. So, look, the thing I find fascinating about sacrifice is this. You know, what is the greatest form of love that mm-hmm. somebody can exhibit? Now, what I find interesting about that question, no matter who you ask, usually they will eventually get to the Jesus answer. You know, John 15, mm-hmm. where Jesus says, greater love has nobody than they lay down their life for their friends. Um, we all know that self-sacrificial uh, love is, is, is the greatest of all. You know, our newspapers love to tell that if there's a story of a parent who's given their life for a child or someone in the military who's sacrificed mm-hmm. themselves to save the rest of their platoon. And so movies and great stories are all based around this. And you can quite quickly get someone to recognize that self-sacrificial love is the greatest form of love. Then that becomes interesting because, well, now this raises the question of, well, is God a God of love? And as I say, many Muslims will affirm that statement, especially those in the West, and then you just simply raise the question of going, well, if sacrifice, self-sacrifice in particular, is the highest form of love, mm. then if God is a God of love, he has to demonstrate self-sacrificial love, surely. Otherwise, you or I could lay our life down for another, and we've done a greater act of love than the God of the universe, which seems patent wow. nonsense. Mm-hmm. And that brings us to Jesus, Romans 5, verse 8. Mm-hmm. You know, God demonstrates his love for us in this, while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Mm-hmm. So that's where I want to get to. And if I can use the Quran to begin a conversation. So I love to start yeah. in the Quran. Mm-hmm. Christians sometimes get nervous about using the Quran. Sure. We're not affirming it. When I talk yeah. to an atheist friend, I'll use Richard Dawkins. I'm talking to a communist. <laughs> I'll use Mao's little red book. I mean, yeah. anything that starts the conversation. Yeah. I mean, as soon as I can, I want to get out of there and mm-hmm. head in Jesus direction. Yeah. And I think somebody once said that, uh, you know, any apologetic that, uh, that doesn't either begin or ideally end with Jesus and, and the cross doesn't deserve the title Christian. We're not yes. here to win arguments. Yeah. We're here to point right. people to Christ. Right. And, uh, and that's what we should be seeking to do. Yes. One, yes. Wonderful. 100%. And, and lastly, this is a question that I received from multiple different sources. Um, and, and you are uniquely suited to answer it. What, what resources would you recommend for young people or students that want to learn more about Islam and engaging with non-believers? Yeah, so for engaging with non-believers uh, in general, uh, including uh, Islam, I mentioned uh, earlier, uh, Jeremy, is uh, Randy Newman's little book, Questioning Evangelism. Uh, it's helped so many people. And uh, it's a brilliant book on just how to have natural conversations with, with Muslims or Hindus or Buddhists or atheists. And, you know, I think sometimes we tend to, particularly if we love apologetics, we sort of go in all guns blazing. And Randy's all about, no, 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 you need to learn to to get to the same point, but do it through conversations. Mm-hmm. So Randy Newman's uh, uh, book, it's used, I use a lot of campus ministries actually use it. And mm-hmm. it's a brilliant, brilliant book. And then for understanding uh, Muslims, there are so many books out there, but the most accessible, I think, to begin with, for someone who's an absolute beginner, is a, a late friend of mine called Nabil Qureshi. Yes. Um, Nabil was a former Muslim, became a Christian, and wrote his uh, testimony up as a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. It was a New York yeah. Times bestseller. It's a brilliant book because it does a number of things. It, it, the, late, the latest edition um, has a lot of apologetic stuff woven into it in the footnotes, and people like Lee Strobel and stuff have added sort of bits on the, in the appendices. Um, but also you get a sense from, as Nabil tells his story, of what the appeal of Islam was. And sometimes where Christians go wrong is we go, oh, why would someone be a Muslim? I can't understand mm-hmm. the appeal. Well, that's a problem. If you think the person you're talking to really doesn't want to be a Muslim, <laughs> when actually they're passionate about their faith, they love their faith. Mm-hmm. And you understand reading the Bill's book why that is, but you also understand 
the journey he went on and the issues that he encountered um, that then led him out of the faith. So I would say Nabil Qureshi's book, yes. it's absolutely brilliantly, but it's a mm-hmm. page turner. And, yeah. uh, and so I can't recommend it more highly. Yes, absolutely. And to anyone listening who is, is interested in learning, um, there's a plethora of videos of, <clears throat> of Nabil, uh, speaking with with Ravi Zacharias and in uh, in many other uh, situations where he he gives a a depth of understanding that honestly is 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 uh, is unseen in a lot of different ways and he's greatly missed so as as uh, Ravi but but Andy you as well are, are a wealth of knowledge as I found out today in this past hour um, and uh, I hope that every person listening to this has been uniquely blessed by uh, what you've had to share. Um, and, uh, and I think you are somebody who is going to be a, a leading voice in helping the next generation of Christians engage with these groups as you've, as you've set such a good example. So I'm so appreciative of you giving me your time this morning. And, uh, and I think that people are going to be, be very uh, encouraged by it. That's very kind of you, Jeremy. And it's been a, a fascinating conversation. Again, thanks for getting up so early in the morning to make this possible. <laughs> well, absolutely. That was my.